Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, welcome back to the podcast. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. I regret that it's taken me so long to upload a new episode, but here we are. Uh, unfortunately, the, the research took a little bit longer than I was expecting. It took me a little bit longer to do my uh, my notes, my markups and stuff like that leading up to this episode. But here we are. After much delay, we have returned. And I tell you what, you, you know, you can tell in the United States... In the United States of America, I don't know about folks overseas, but in the United States of America, you can definitely tell when an election is approaching because the news immediately stops talking about just about anything else except the election. I am firmly convinced that you could lose an entire aircraft carrier battle group and not even know about it until the election is over because nobody will talk about anything on the news except for the frickin' election. And it's not that I don't care about elections. It's that um, it just becomes overwhelming at some point. I mean, if you don't know who you're voting for by now, you really ought to, you really ought to maybe not vote at all. Just, just sit, sit this one out and come back at it next time around when you've had some time to really think about it. And I, I mean that seriously, but I'm not going to talk about all that crap. I, I just wanted to vent some frustration. Is anybody else out there feel the same way as I do about that? Are you sick and tired of hearing about it? I mean, in my opinion about it is it's just shut up and let's, let's get to November. Everybody go out and vote. Well, not everybody. I don't want everybody to vote. I'm not one of those people who wants everybody to vote. I'm not one of those folks. I, I re There's some people who really should not be voting. But um, everybody who should vote, go out and vote. But then let that be the end of it. I mean, I can't even I can't even watch the news like like two, three weeks leading up to an election. I just stop. I can't I can't I can't I can't do it. It just bugs the crap out of me. But anyway, on this episode, we are going to talk about the founding fathers. Again, as usual, we always do, don't we? Or for the most part. And we're going to be back in the letters on this episode. Thank goodness. And I think I've got a good discussion set up for you here today. I think this one is going to be interesting. Uh, I got a letter from Benjamin Franklin, and we've also got some uh, additional material from out of the Continental Congress that is talked about in this letter from Benjamin Franklin. He's going to give us some uh, insight into this particular uh, work from the Continental Congress, and I hope that you find it as interesting as I do. Now, a little foreshadowing. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm either going to do something fairly generic or I'm going to do something a little bit offbeat, but it's going to it's gonna be related to history, but it's not going to seem that way at first. Uh, I, I, you know, I was reading a story this past week that really bugged the crap out of me, and I feel motivated to talk about it because I was, I was planning on doing something about what, I'm gonna, what I might be talking about on the next episode. I was planning on doing something on that anyway, but it was going to probably be a while. It was going to probably be about a year <laughs> or so until I did something, and, and it still will. But I feel compelled to talk about at least a little piece of it sooner rather than later, on the off chance that it might have some impact. I'm thinking about doing that next episode. And it doesn't really have anything to do with politics at all. It's, uh, it does have a little bit to do with history, and specifically our connection with history, and how that can uh, affect us, and how a lack of connection with history can affect us as well. But uh, something to think about for the next episode. I, you know, When I do that episode, I, I really hope that... Um, it's appreciated for what it is. But in the meantime, we'll get back in the letters, and on this episode, we'll do exactly that. Back to Benjamin Franklin. What do you say we get started on that right now? Let us begin. And if at any point during this recording my voice starts to sound really tired, because uh, that tends to happen sometimes at the end of a long day, and this is the end of a very long day for me, so as, uh, as of the time I am recording this. So if the, my voice starts to sound like... Um, I've been up for a very long time. It's because I have. Okay, we're going to read a letter from Dr. Benjamin Franklin to a Joseph Galloway on February the 25th of 1775. We're going to start off in this letter, and then we're going to bounce out to a document from the Continental Congress, and then we're going to be back into this letter. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a back and forth, but it's necessary to get the job done today. So let us begin without delay. And this letter, again, is written from London. Our, our good friend Dr. Franklin is still in London. And I quote... In my last Per Falconer, I mentioned to you my showing your plan of union to Lords Chatham and Camden. 
I now hear that you had sent it to Lord Dartmouth, Lord Gower. I believe alluded to it when, in the House, he censured the Congress severely as first resolving to receive a plan for uniting the colonies to the mother country and afterwards rejecting it and ordering their first resolution to be erased out of their minutes. Permit me to hint to you that it is whispered here by ministerial people that yourself and Mr. J of New York are friends to their measures and give them private intelligence of the views of the popular country party in America. I do not believe this, but I thought it a duty of friendship to acquaint you with the report, end quote. Okay, I'm not going to spend much time on that last part about Mr. J uh, and his uh, apparent intelligence gathering there in uh, the Continental Congress, and that would be John Jay, of course. But what I will talk about at some length, and I will go over it with you, is this plan of union that uh, Dr. Franklin is talking about. I'll uh, read that section, uh, a well, portion of that section again, quote, I mentioned to you my showing your plan of union to Lords Chatham and Camden, end quote. Interesting. And then continuing on, quote, When in the House he censured the Congress severely as first resolving to receive a plan for uniting the colonies to the mother country and afterwards rejecting it, end quote. So what he's talking about is a plan that was put forth by Mr. Galloway here, the guy he's writing the letter to. And it was a plan of resolving these disputes with Great Britain and the colonies. And it was a plan of uniting the colonies to Great Britain and solving perhaps this problem of taxation without representation. So he came up with a plan for a, a stronger union between the colonies and Great Britain. Is basically what we're talking about. And this was proposed in Congress as a solution to the rift that was beginning to uh, evolve between Great Britain and the colonies. And as it was stated here in the, uh, in the letter by Dr. Franklin, it was rejected. And it was rejected by a fairly narrow margin, by the way. I think it was just one vote or a couple of votes away from... Uh, Obtaining a majority vote in the uh, Continental Congress. So what is this plan? What plan was he talking about? Well, good news, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to read it. And probably in no other podcast in the world are you ever going to hear this document read aloud. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, or whether I think it's a good thing, but I don't know whether some other people would think it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think this is an interesting document, though. It really, it really shows the lengths to which some people in the Continental Congress were willing to go to try to resolve this thing. And they, they really spent a lot of time on it, trying to figure up a way to, to uh, resolve this issue with Great Britain. It wasn't adopted at the end of the day, and Dr. Franklin's going to tell us why by the way, if you, in case you're curious. So as I read this, understand that it was re it was subsequently rejected, and there were reasons for it, and Dr. Franklin is going to enlighten us later. But I will read this document to you. So we're going to segue away from Dr. Franklin's letter, and we are going to go to Joseph Galloway's Plan of Union. And this was a resolution submitted to the Continental Congress on uh, September the 28th of 1774. At least that's when this document is dated. My source for this, by the way, is the University of Chicago. That's where I'm getting this document. It was actually, I think, the only place I could find that actually had a copy of this document. It is a very scarce document, if I do say so. So let us begin. And this is going to sound like I'm reading a bill before Congress because that's basically what it is. Uh, it's going to have a lot of that uh, kind of legal speak that a, uh, a congressional piece of legislation would have. So, if, you know, hopefully you don't get too bored with this. It's not very long. It's, it's fairly brief. This will not take very long at all. So just bear with me. And I quote, Resolved that the Congress will apply to His Majesty for a redress of grievances under which his faithful subjects in America labor, and assure him that the colonists hold in abhorrence the idea of being considered independent communities on the British government and most ardently desire the establishment of a political union, not only among themselves, but with the mother state, upon those principles of safety and freedom which are essential in the constitution of all free governments, and particularly that of the British legislature. And as the colonies, from their local circumstances, cannot be represented in the Parliament of Great Britain, they will humbly propose to His Majesty and his two houses of Parliament the following plan, under which... The strength of the whole empire may be drawn together on any emergency in interest of both countries advanced and the rights and liberties of America secured, end quote. So that's the lead-in to this bill. And he references, of course, the colonies, Great Britain, and the empire. 
some folks out there may wonder why I keep uh, making references to the shadow of the Empire or the Empire generally, all the way up to and including the uh, the lifetime of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, that's why, because that's what it was called. It was called the Empire. People commonly referred to it as that, even back when uh, the American colonies were around. And keep in mind, at the time the American colonies, I encourage you to look at a map of the British Empire at the time. The British Empire, at this time, was relatively small. By the time of 1924 that I mentioned um, in the previous episode, the British Empire will grow by several orders of magnitude. That's the difference between 1774 and 1924. Huge difference. Huge difference. And that's just, I, I, I describe it that way just so you can paint a mental picture in your head of, okay, how big was the empire at this time? Because some people haven't looked at the uh, the various maps of the British Empire over time because it changed a lot. And some folks may remember what it was like back in the beginning. They may have looked at a map during the Revolutionary War and said, okay, I know what the British Empire looks like. And then some folks have looked at a map in 1924 and they think, okay, that's the British Empire. But it, it changed a lot. It, uh, it grew quite a bit between 19, uh, or excuse me, between 1774 and 1924. But let us continue to get into the details of this. So so we have the lead-in of this plan, and it's very interesting the way he words this. I mean, there's, there's a clear reverence for His Majesty, the British Empire, and a very clear desire to want to maintain a strong union between the colonies and Great Britain, to keep the empire together. Interesting. Doesn't sound like a, a lot of rabble-rousing going on in this document, does it? Not a lot of shoot-from-the-hip. Not a lot of... uh rallying cries for war, is there? Now, that, that kind of thing, like I said, it did happen in the colonies at this time. There were those people who were crying for that. You know, that would kind of be your Patrick Henry wing of the uh, American colonies. But there were a great many people who were just trying to find a peaceful way to make this happen. Unfortunately, the British Empire was not going to have any of it. So let us continue. Quote, that a British and American legislature for the regulating the administration of the general affairs of America be proposed and established in America, including all the said colonies, within and under which government, each colony shall retain its present constitution and powers of regulating and governing its own internal policy, policy in all cases whatsoever, end quote. Interesting. So they propose an American legislature of sorts. Quote, that a British and American legislature for the regulating the administration of the general affairs of America be proposed and established, end quote. And in America, no less. So this is going to establish a kind of legislature in America, thus eliminating the problem of taxation without representation when these decisions get made in Parliament, far away from the American colonies, which is much to the uh, disdain of the American colonies. And here, and continuing on, this is also very important, quote, including all the said colonies within and under which government each colony shall retain its present constitution, end quote. Remember from previous episodes that at this time, the British Empire was in the process of overthrowing, as a matter of fact, it did overthrow the legitimate government of Massachusetts and installed a military dictatorship. This is a problem. The colonists do not like this. It would be like if the federal government today walked into a state in the Union, overthrew its legitimate government and its legitimate state constitution, and installed a military or otherwise political dictatorship in the state. That would be illegal, unconstitutional, and any president or government that attempted to do so would be guilty, in my opinion, of high treason. That's what we're talking about here. But the colonists, maintaining a cool, a cool head and an even temper, are suggesting, okay, let's undo that, but let's make it a point to make it clear to the king and to the parliament that we must return to retaining our present constitution. That's what they say. Quote, each colony shall retain its present constitution, end quote. Very important. Because Britain, the, Britain was in the process of overthrowing those legitimate constitutions, and we cannot have that. We must have our state constitutions, just like the colonies at the time must have their colonial charters, a.k.a. their constitution, and their ancient rights. You aggregate all that together, it's all part of their constitutional rights. Quote, and powers of regulating and governing its own internal policy in all cases whatsoever, end quote. In all cases whatsoever. This flies in the face of what? What did the British do? We talked about this uh, previously. 
the Declaratory Act, right? The Declaratory Act was something that the British did uh, many years prior to this, when they when they repealed the Stamp Act and other in this larger dispute with the colonies, more than just the Stamp Act, but that was a part of it. Eventually, they they repealed that and. Parliament kind of snuck one in at the 11th hour and said, okay, we'll repeal these things and we'll kind of make amends with the colonies, but under the Declaratory Act, we say that we have the right to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. And then in 1774 and 75, they return to that and say, we are going to bind you in all cases whatsoever. They have supreme authority, supremacy, if you will. That is to say, they have authority over everything. The colonies have authority over nothing. Does that sound familiar? Did I talk about that recently? About some government trying to achieve some kind of supremacy or absolute authority over some smaller governments in the world? Did, did I mention that? I think I did. It's another one of those. Does this sound familiar to anybody? I'm just putting it out there. And some people might ask me, you know, Roman, for God's sakes, man, why do you keep saying that? Why do you keep saying, does this sound familiar? And I say that because it should sound familiar. If you keep your ear to the ground and you really understand what is going on, much of this will sound very, very familiar to you, especially if you live in the United States of America. And I'm not saying that to be incendiary. I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I'm not saying that to be divisive. I'm saying that because it is simply the truth. It is factual, and that's the way it is. I don't make this stuff up. Benjamin Franklin doesn't make this stuff up. Benjamin Franklin's just reporting on what's going on, and so am I. True to the uh, legacy of Dr. Franklin, that is what that is what I that is what I do in part. But basically, what they're saying here is we're going to no more. Are you going to no more? Can we tolerate you overthrowing our legitimate governments? In other words, we will retain our present constitution, and no more will you bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever. But we will bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever in our legislature that we will create here in partnership with the British Parliament, essentially. That's what they're setting up here. This is going to be a joint endeavor. But anything that happens has to be done under present colonial charters, constitutions, and this legislature in America and the colonies will bind them in all cases whatsoever. So no more taxation without representation, no more declaratory act, none of this crap. Keep it local. Does this, does again, does this sound familiar? Keep the government local. Keep the decisions local. Keep the decision making close to the people. Don't keep it in some distant government far away. Keep it close to the people. Local governments. Colonial governments, what we would call state governments today, keep it in the states. I hope I'm making myself clear. Let us continue. And again, because Dr. Franklin opened the door, and I'm simply walking through it, and I'm putting what he's saying, or more specifically what this document is saying, obviously, this is Mr. Galloway. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just characterizing what he says. I'm putting it in a modern context. I'm translating this document into modern times. Just replace colony with state, colonial charter with state constitution, etc., etc. I mean, and you will see a mirror image of what is happening in 1774 and 75 with what is happening today. It is almost literally a mirror image. Just FYI. Continuing on, quote, that the said government be administered by a president general to be appointed by the king and a grand council to be chosen by the representatives of the people of the several colonies in their representative assemblies once in every three years, end quote. Very interesting. Quote, the said government be administered by a president general, end quote. Kind of like a, uh, a president of the Continental Congress, or a president, what we would think of as maybe a president of the Senate today. Interesting. And who is the president of the Senate, by the way? That's a that's a that's a civics trivia question for all you young folks out there who may be listening to the program. Who is the president of the Senate? I'll give you a few seconds. This will be a this will be a fun exercise. Who is the president of the Senate of the United States of America today? The answer is the vice president of the United States. That is the president of the Senate who is appointed effectively appointed by whom? The president of the United States, right? When, when the president is running for election, before they're actually president, they select a vice president of the United States, who, uh, who in effect becomes de facto president of the Senate. 
So the president of the Senate is, in essence, appointed by the president. I'll read this to you one more time. Quote, that the said government be administered by a president general to be appointed by the king, end quote. Is any of this sounding familiar? It's almost like history repeats itself, doesn't it? It's very striking. I guarantee you, you will not hear this on any other podcast in the world. It's just not going to happen. I mean, you may hear that little tidbit, but in the aggregate, all the things that we have talked about on this podcast up to this point, and all the things that we are going to talk about on this podcast, you will hear it nowhere else on this planet except in this podcast. Most likely. Because nobody is going to go to these depths to dig out this information and spend this much time doing it. This is going to take years, ladies and gentlemen. We still haven't left 1775. Do you know how many decades left we have to go? We're still in the first two years. And it's going to be a while before we leave those first two years. The reason why I mention this is because if you ever wanted to know the value of this program, uh, a.k.a. this podcast, this study group that we have, this is it. If you ever wanted to know how history repeats itself, if you ever wanted to know those lessons from history and how they impact us, how, how history from 250 years ago can impact us almost very directly, straight to the point, this is it. doesn't get any better than this. I'll read the, another section of this to you again. Quote, and a grand council to be chosen by the representatives of the people of the several colonies and their respective assemblies once and every three years, end quote. Did you know that the senators in the United States Senate in the United States did not used to be elected by popular vote? They used to be selected by the state legislatures. Very reminiscent of this document. Because, keep, because again, we're, we're, these, uh, this grand council that they're talking about, this, uh, this kind of American legislature, It's not going to be elected directly by the people. It's going to be elected by the people's representatives in the colonies. It's very, very reminiscent of the United States Senate, or at least the way the United States Senate was supposed to be. I'm going to talk about that more when we get into talking about the Constitution. There's a a long discussion to be had with regards to that. So if you you like talking about that kind of thing, get ready, because it's coming in probably about, I don't know, by the time we get there, probably be like four or five years from now. With the, I, I will caveat that, you know, if, if folks out there want me to cover the Constitution sooner than that, I'll do it. If, if, uh, if I get enough people in the comments, uh, that is to say in the reviews to the, to the podcast on Apple Podcasts saying, hey, could you cover the Constitution sooner rather than later? Uh, I will do it. So you folks do have the ability to affect the content on the podcast to a certain degree. Uh, I can move some stuff up. I don't have a problem doing that. I, I did that initially with the Declaration of Independence. I've already covered it, um, and there were reasons why I did that. Uh, I don't have a problem doing the same thing with the Constitution uh, if you folks want me to. Just so, just leave a review, and uh, I'll, I'll tally the votes at some point. And I'll feel I'll if I get enough people who want to see that, I will um, I will bump it up. But this is very interesting. It's in, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? This Grand Council that they're proposing. I think it's an interesting idea. It, it is problematic for a few reasons. And again, Doctor Franklin is going to educate us as to the why. But it is an interesting idea, and it is a it is a, a very novel approach to solving this particular problem that they have in the colonies at the time. But the reason why I point that one, that that last bit out about the representatives not being chosen by the people, but or excuse me, the Grand Council not being chosen by the people, but rather being chosen by the representatives in the colonies, is because that is very much like a republic, not a democracy. Oh my gosh, Roman, did you just say this is not a democracy again? Yep, that's exactly what I just said. The United States of America today is not a democracy. It's not supposed to be a democracy. It was never supposed to be a democracy. And hopefully for as long as I am alive, the United States will never, ever be a democracy. And I hope, beyond all hope, I hope for the next million years that the United States will never be a freaking democracy, because that would be devastating to the people of the United States of America. Uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This podcast is where democracy goes to die, as it should. Democracy should always die. And if it doesn't die on its own, you should kill it at the earliest possible convenience. Yes, I said it, and I, I guarantee you, you are going to have a hard time trying to find another podcaster out there who's actually going to have the, the guts to say that out loud, because the accusations will always be, well, what do you do? You support fascism? What are you, a communist? Uh, you support communism or fascism or something? No, I support a republic. And a republic of laws, not men, as I believe somebody once said a long time ago. Dr. Franklin called it a republic, and in the memory of Dr. Franklin, for all that that man sacrificed, his time, his effort, his energy, his voice, his words, all of it, 
I will always say that this is supposed to be a republic because Dr. Franklin would want me to. How do I know that? Because that's what he called it. And that's what they're setting up here. Even before, even before we get to the Declaration of Independence, these people are thinking republic, republic, republic. Because if it was a democracy, if it was a true democracy, this grand council would be elected by the people. And the president general would not be appointed by the king. He would be elected by the people by popular vote. That's a democracy. But this is not what they're setting up because they know that democracy is not good. It is dangerous. It always has been. It always will be. And I will talk more about it later in another episode as to why it's so dangerous. I've already talked a lot in the pa in past episodes why it is that people are so scared to say that and why so many people talk about this country like it's a democracy, and they call it a democracy. On the news, they call it a democracy. In politics, they call it a democracy. And like I said before, all of those people are either lying or they're incompetent. And most of them are not incompetent, if you're following me. There are reasons why the Founding Fathers wanted a Grand Council or a Senate or whatever, chosen by the representatives of the people instead of by the people directly. Dangerous. Dangerous democracy. Good luck finding another human being in this country that will say that. Unless, of course, they're just a communist or a fascist, which I am not, by the way. I am very much a proponent of the republic. As this country used to be, people commonly referred to this country as a republic in the past, not a democracy. You ever hear that song? You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a famous, um, orchestral song. I don't know what to call it. It's uh, called Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's not called Battle Hymn of the Repo of the Democracy. It's called Battle Hymn of the Republic. And what is the Pledge of Allegiance? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Not the democracy, the republic. Because a long time ago, before the liars and the charlatans and the snake oil salesmen got their hands on this country and started calling it a democracy, it was commonly known, as it is and always should be, a republic. And you recognize it in the structure of government. And if you, and the reason why I'm spending so much time on this is because some of the younger people in, in, in the study group are, pro are probably never have been taught this. They don't understand what, what the structure of government looks like in a republic versus a democracy. They just don't know because they've been failed by everybody in their life. They've been failed by their parents. Yes, I said it. They've been failed by the public school system. They've been failed by society. They have been failed by everybody. But they're not going to be failed by me. And they're not going to be failed by this study group. Not while I have breath in my lungs. Because Benjamin Franklin would chastise me greatly if I let that happen. So that's why I spend so much time on that. But let's continue reading this uh, this plan for uh, union uh, of Mr. Galloway. And we're going to pick up here where we left off talking about this Grand Council. Okay, talking about the Grand Council. Quote, Who shall meet at the city of, for the first time, being called by the President General as soon as conveniently may be after his appointment. That there shall be a new election of members for the Grand Council every three years, and on the death, removal, or resignation of any member, his place shall be supplied by a new choice at the next sitting of assembly of the colony he represented. End quote. And continuing on, we're going to skip a paragraph and go down. Quote, that the Grand Council shall have power to choose their speaker and shall hold and exercise all the like rights, liberties, and privileges as are held and exercised by and in the House of Commons of Great Britain, that the President General shall hold his office during the pleasure of the King, and his assent shall be requisite to all acts of the Grand Council, and it shall be his office and duty to cause them to be carried into execution, that the President General, by and with the advice and consent of the Grand Council, hold and exercise all the legislative rights, powers, and authorities necessary for regulating the and administering all the general policy and affairs of the colonies in which Great Britain and the colonies, or any of them, the colonies in general, or more than one colony, are in any manner concerned, as well as civil and criminal as commercial. That the said President General and the Grand Council be an inferior and distinct branch of the British legislature, united and incorporated with it for the aforesaid general purpose, and that any of the said general regulations may originate and be formed and digested either in the Parliament of Great Britain or in the said Grand Council, and being prepared, transmitted, to the other for their approbation or dissent, and that the assent of both shall be requisite to the validity of all such general acts or statutes. 
that in time of war, all bills for granting aid to the Crown prepared by the Grand Council and approved by the President General shall be valid and passed into law without the assent of the British Parliament, end quote. So it's going into detail here, describing the ins and outs of this council. And we already talked about how people are going to be elected. Every three years, we got that. And then it, it details the, the job of the President General, which is interesting. Quote, that the President General shall hold his office during the pleasure of the King, and his assent shall be requisite to all acts of the Grand Council, and it shall be his office and duty to cause them to be carried into execution, end quote. So it requires his approval. There's nothing that's going to leave this council without his approval. And then uh, down here a little ways, it talks about how the general, the Grand Council is going to work with the actual British Parliament. Quote, that the said President General and the Grand Council be an inferior and distinct branch of the British legislature, united and incorporated with it. End quote. And continuing on. Quote, and, the and that the assent of both shall be requisite to the validity of all such general acts or statutes. End quote. So... In other words, although this Grand Council is said to be inferior and distinct and incorporated with it, both, the assent of both, the Parliament and this Grand Council, are required for the validity of the, of the uh, general acts or statutes. So in other words, the British Parliament, if this were agreed to, the British Parliament would no longer be able to ride roughshod over the colonies. This Grand Council and the President General give the colonies a voice. Some kind of a buffer in between what's going on over there in Britain, in the Parliament, and what actually happens over here in the colonies. The Parliament does not get to bind them in all cases whatsoever, not without the consent of this Grand Council. Now, of course, to make sure that the King feels like he has some uh, control over this thing, President General, again, is going to be appointed by the King. So that way the King can feel good about it and make sure that he has some kind of a... He can, he can put his man in charge, in, in essence, over there and, and preside over the thing so that his presence is known in the colonies and in the Grand Council. Very interesting. So Dr. Franklin is now going to talk to us about this, uh, this plan. So we're going to go back to the letter from Dr. Benjamin Franklin to Joseph Galloway regarding Galloway's plan. And see what Dr. Franklin has to say about it. Quote, I have not heard what objections were made to the plan in the Congress, nor would I make more than this one, that when I consider the extreme corruption prevalent among all orders of men in this old, rotten state, and the glorious public virtue so predominant in our rising country, I cannot but apprehend more mischief than benefit from a closer union. I fear they will drag us after them in all the plundering wars their desperate circumstances, injustice, and rapacity may prompt them to undertake, and their wide-wasting prodigality and profusion, a gulf that will swallow up every aid we may distress ourselves to afford them. Here, numberless and needless places, enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites, bribes, groundless quarrels, foolish expeditions, false accounts or no accounts, contracts and jobs devour all revenue and produce continual necessity in the midst of natural plenty. I apprehend, therefore, that to unite us intimately will only be to corrupt and poison us also. It seems like Mezentius's coupling and binding together the dead and the living, end quote. My gosh, Dr. Franklin, tell us how you really feel. You know, there may be some out there who say that I have some harsh words for the British Empire, but I don't think I hold a candle to Dr. Franklin. Dr. Franklin has some some very harsh words for the uh, the British Empire. Did I did I, I mean did he make that clear? I think he made it pretty doggone clear. Then it was very well said, by the way, very well said. Uh, there's a few words in here I feel duty bound to define because they are not in common usage anymore. Like uh, this section here. Quote, I fear they will drag us after them, and all plundering wars, their desperate circumstances, injustice, and rapacity may prompt them to undertake. End quote. Rapacity is like greed. So keep that keep that word in mind, greed. The next uh, next section I'll read here uh, in this same paragraph again. Quote, and their wide wasting prodigality and profusion, a gulf that will swallow up every aid we may distress ourselves to afford them. End quote. Uh, prodigality is like spending money um, recklessly. It's like profligate spending, and profusion is a kind of excess. Uh, again, living lavishly, living large. Interesting. So we have greed, spending money recklessly, and living large, living lavishly. 
uh, think conspicuous consumption, as some folks might refer to that today. Interesting. So, and th these are all words that he's using to describe the British Empire, specifically what this government over there in Britain is like. So let's continue. How else does he describe the British Empire at this particular time? And again, specifically the government and the people in it. Quote, Here numberless and needless places, enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites, bribes, groundless quarrels, foolish expeditions, false accounts or no accounts, contracts and jobs devour all revenue. End quote. So now we have enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites, bribes. Interesting. Bribes. Bribes, you say? Now that sounds like lobbyists to me. Does that sound like lobbyists to you? Like in Washington, D.C., when the lobbyists come around with their big checks attached to big bank accounts? Or does it sound like maybe political donations when those millionaires and those billionaires, they donate millions of dollars to a political campaign? I don't know about you, but I can't donate a million dollars to a political campaign. Can you do that? I can't do that. I would venture to guess that most people can't do that. I mean, does that strike you as being some kind of a corrupt system? When like one or two people can kind of move the levers of power in politics in the United States, but the rest of us can't? Politicians are for sale, but you and I really can't afford the price. Other people can afford the price, but you can't. That's basically bribes. It sounds like bribery to me. Uh, that's partly what I think Benjamin Franklin is talking about. This uh, When money infiltrates the government in some significant kind of way, affecting the levers of power, those are bribes. Whether it's legal or illegal doesn't really matter. It fits the same definition, in my opinion. This is a very interesting set of things that he's put together here. So we got greed, we've got spending money recklessly, we've got lavish living, enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites. By the way, perquisites is basically like um, uh, freebies, benefits, little bonuses, things of that nature. Interesting. And that, you know, it's it's just, the, the, all these things are really painting a picture of, the, of a corrupt British government. Um, he really lays it on pretty doggone thick. I mean, if you read this paragraph and come away thinking anything other than Benjamin Franklin is describing the British government as absolutely corrupt, then you're not paying attention. Because that's exactly what he's describing. I don't think he could lay it on any thicker than he has, and I think he's doing that deliberately. And he makes the point very clear here towards the end, quote, I apprehend, therefore, that to unite us intimately will only be to corrupt and poison us also, end quote. Corrupt. And poison us also. So he's basically saying that the British government is corrupt and poisoned. Now, riddle me this. A government that is com composed of people who are greedy, they spend money recklessly, they live lavishly, enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites, a.k.a. freebies and benefits, bribes, so on and so forth. Does any of that sound familiar to you at all? I mean, I'm just asking the question. Does it sound familiar? Because it sounds familiar to me. I mean, I, 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 think I've, I think I've seen something like this recently. I think I've been seeing it my whole life, actually. Even before I realized I was seeing it. Because, I, I, you know, you pay attention to these people who are in the government, in elected office specifically, for long periods of time. When they leave office, I mean, with their many millions of dollars, usually, how the heck did they get that money? Did greed have something to do with that? I think so spending money recklessly in Congress in order to make their lobbyists' friends happy, in order so they could cash the checks and get their political contributions. I think that had something to do with it. Living lavishly? Well, I've mentioned it before. Most of these people live in mansions. They, I mean, most, you know, these politicians, they don't live in a trailer or a van on the, uh, on the backside of town, uh, living on a steady diet of ramen noodles. That's not how they live. It's probably how they should live, but it's not how they live. They live quite a bit more lavishly than that. As a matter of fact, they live quite a bit more lavishly than most people in the United States. It's not even close. Like the average kind of lifestyle in the United States compared to the way they live, it's not even close. Enormous salaries. I don't know that their direct salary is quite so high. I mean, it is. If you're curious how much a congressperson or a senator makes, it's somewhere around $180,000 a year. But... It's all those little extras that they get, the perquisites, as Dr. Franklin describes in here, that is to say the freebies and the benefits. Because on that salary, maintaining a couple of residences, assuming they do, there's, I mean, in theory, they live within their state, and then they also maintain a residence in or around Washington, D.C. But uh, making that kind of money, how is it they become like multimillionaires in rather quick succession? I mean, they, it's almost just natural that you go to Washington, D.C., you become multimillionaire. 
How's that happen? Bribes, perhaps, have anything to do with that? I don't know. And why am I why am I saying this? Am I trying to be partisan? No, because this is obviously this is a bipartisan problem, right? So that that I this is the very definition of nonpartisan. What I'm talking about here. I'm trying to tell you here that. If you think this kind of a problem like what we had, what Dr. Franklin is describing with the British government, if you think this problem ended in 1776, you're wrong. This is just naturally what governments become over time. And the worst thing in the world that you can do is just say, oh, that's just how business is done. Is Dr. Franklin saying, oh, that's just how business is done? Oh, we just don't don't worry about it. Just just keep just keep voting for whoever. Keep dealing with the British Parliament. Uh, we'll just have our little colonial charters over here and vote for our you know elected representatives therein. Uh, but we just we just got to deal with that British Parliament because that's just how business is done. Is that what he's saying here? No. So I think we probably ought to take a cue from Dr. Franklin. You see, all this time when I talk about not tolerating corruption and the problem with these corrupt politicians, you think all of this is coming from me that these are my opinions, that this is my message, that I am trying to deliver my message through all of this. It's not. I've just re- I've read these letters before. Understand, a lot of these letters that I bring to you, I've, I've read them in some cases years before I ever bring them onto this podcast. Long before I ever thought about doing this podcast, many years ago, I read not all of these letters, but some of them. So it, it just lives inside my head. So when I start talking about the corruption, the spending, the bribes, the lobbyists, the corruption, and remember many episodes ago when I first said that the United States government today more closely resembles the British Parliament of 1775 than it did the Continental Congress of 1775. Why do I say stuff like that? Is that my message? Is that my opinion? No. It's really Dr. Franklin describing something here that I see as very familiar. And if what Dr. Franklin is describing here in this paragraph does not sound very, very familiar to you, then I would suggest, again, you pay a little bit closer attention, because this should sound eerily familiar to you, like Dr. Franklin is reading your mail, like he's doing a newscast from 2022. That's what this sounds like to me, and that's a freaking problem. And if this if this doesn't make alarm bells go off in your head, ding, 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 ding. Again, that's that you probably need to think a little bit harder about this. And remember that when we get into these arguments about corrupt politicians. My corrupt politician is better than your corrupt politician. My corrupt political party is better than your corrupt corrupt political party. Dr. Franklin doesn't give a crap about your political party. He doesn't give a crap. You know what he cares about? He cares about this, quote, I cannot but apprehend more mischief than benefit from a closer union. I fear they will drag us after them in all the plundering wars their desperate circumstances and justice and rapacity may prompt them to undertake, and their wide-wasting prodigality and profusion, a gulf that will swallow up every aid we may distress ourselves to afford them. Here, numberless and needless places, enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites, bribes, groundless quarrels, foolish expeditions, false accounts or no accounts, contracts and jobs devour all revenue and produce continual necessity in the midst of natural plenty. I apprehend, therefore, that to unite us intimately will only be to corrupt and poison us also. End quote. That's what Dr. Franklin thinks. And if your direction, if the road you are walking down takes you down a different path than Dr. Franklin is walking down, I would suggest you stop dead in your tracks, think long and hard about the direction you're walking in, and maybe, maybe turn around. Go back to the fork in the road and start following the footsteps of Benjamin Franklin. And what do I mean by that? Don't tolerate this crap. It's not just how business is done. We should not just put up with it. We should not just go along with it. Go down and vote for the corrupt political candidate that's just a little bit better than the other corrupt political candidate. Go down and vote for the corrupt political party that's just a little bit better than the other corrupt political party. It's not helping anything. Because all this stuff that Dr. Franklin is describing here, none of it is good. And if you try to press a closer union with those people and with those entities, what Dr. Franklin feared is the same thing that I fear. Quote, I fear they will drag us after them, and all the plundering wars their desperate circumstances and justice and rapacity may prompt them to undertake, end quote. And remember that the next time these people are trying to take your private property away from you. I, I warned in a number of episodes ago that there is an increasing war against private property. You gotta ask yourself why. Especially from these people. These kind of people. 
who seem to want more and more and more. Everything that you have to give, they want it and more. Remember these words that Dr. Franklin is using. Greed, spending recklessly, lavish, lavish lifestyles, conspicuous consumption, as we would say in today's world. Enormous salaries, pensions, perquisites, freebies, benefits, bribes. They got all of that going on for them. They want more. They want everything that you have and more. Just like Dr. Franklin is describing here, because these people are the same all over the world. As Khrushchev said, politicians are the same all over the world. They all build bridges where there are no rivers. That's not the only thing they have in common. They want everything you have and more. How do I know that? Because Dr. Franklin said so, quote, And their wide-wasting prodigality and profusion, a gulf that will swallow up every aid we may distress ourselves to afford them, end quote. And continuing on, Quote, false accounts or no accounts, contracts and jobs devour all revenue and produce a continual necessity in the midst of natural plenty, end quote. Continual necessity. Swallow up every aid we may distress ourselves to afford them. You will never be able to work hard enough to satisfy these people. Just like the American colonists will never, will never have been able to work hard enough to satisfy that parliament. They will tax them until they are dead in the ground. And it still won't be enough. If the Founding Fathers had not put their foot down and said no, like during the Stamp Act, if they hadn't put their foot down and said no, they would have continued to take and take and take until there was nothing left to give. I just, you know, I just get worked up when Dr. Franklin describes this because, again, it you would hope that it wouldn't sound so familiar today, but it does. Because, again, this is just the natural tendency of these people. And we've talked about this before. Why in the world did the Founding Fathers put the Bill of Rights in the Constitution? Because it was not there originally. So why did they put it there? Why did they feel it necessary to circle back in 1791 and put it there? And the answer is because they knew this thing was going to go sideways. Because they knew that the natural tendency of these kinds of systems, any kind of government whatsoever, doesn't matter whether it's a republic or whatever, monarchy, whatever, they always go sideways eventually. There's always this tendency towards greed, spending recklessly, lavish living, enormous salaries, pensions, bribes, etc. And out of that usually comes some kind of a desire to take the rights away from the people. Because that's the only way you can continue to take more and more and more and more, is to take those rights away from the people. That's why the Bill of Rights is there. Well, that's one reason. But that's a big one. Now, there's a line in here that I find interesting. Quote, False accounts or no accounts, contracts and jobs devour all revenue and produce continual necessity in the midst of natural plenty, end quote. He's describing a situation here where there's plenty. There's plenty for everybody, it seems. There's enough to go around. But this greed, these bribes, this corruption produces continual necessity. Interesting. Does that sound familiar? I mean, in more ways than one, does that sound familiar? I mean, can you think of anything in like, I don't know, recent years that has been talked about like, talked about and affected in such a way that it produces a kind of continual necessity when really there's plenty to go around. There's plenty for everybody. I can think of a couple things right off the top of my head. You got to be careful about this. There is a desire, like Dr. Franklin is describing here, this kind of behavior is really not just accidental. I believe it's also intentional in many, in, in many respects. It's almost like a quote-unquote design, if you will, like Dr. Franklin said in a previous letter that we talked about. There's almost a desire to create continual necessity. Even though there's plenty for everybody, some people in society want that plenty to be inaccessible to most people. They want to take it away from most people. They don't want you to have it, whatever that is. Could be, could be 50 different things. Pay close attention to that, because you're going to be seeing more of it in the next few years, probably. Just a thought. But be very, you know, be very aware when you start hearing people talk about continual necessity, a.k.a. shortages, a.k.a. sacrifice, we have to give this up, so on and so forth, when really, at the end of the day, if you would just get out of the way, there's natural plenty. Natural plenty. And there's that word again, by the way, virtue. Did you catch that at the beginning of the paragraph? Quote, When I consider the extreme corruption prevalent among all orders of men in this old rotten state, and the glorious public virtue so prominent, predominant, in our rising country, end quote. 
It's interesting how he describes the uh, the old rotten state. I want to say that again because it's so striking. Quote, when I consider the extreme corruption prevalent among all orders of the men in this old rotten state and the glorious public virtue so predominant in our rising country, end quote. He compares and contrasts the virtue of the American colonies versus the corruption in the old rotten state, a.k.a. Great Britain. Now, I don't know. Sometimes I, I know we have had listeners in Great Britain to this podcast before. I can understand, though, why how uh, I can understand why a great many people in Great Britain would not want to listen to this podcast. The, the question that I would ask if I were living in Great Britain was, you know, that that old rotten state that Dr. Franklin is describing, did that disappear somewhere between 1775 and 2022? Did it just kind of miraculously evaporate into the ether and just uh, go away? Or is it still there? I think it's not just there in Great Britain. I think it's everywhere that Great Britain ever was. I think this is very much what I call the shadow of the empire. And if you wonder why this paragraph sounds, again, if you're paying close attention over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, or honestly, the past 80 years in the United States, if you're paying close attention, the reason why this this paragraph sounds so familiar is because that concept that I talk about, the shadow of the empire, is alive and well. It's always there, and it's something that we need to be aware of. And the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, again, was an attempt to try to keep that at bay, because I believe the Founding Fathers were very aware of that, what Dr. Franklin is describing here. This could very easily hop over the Atlantic and come, in, come into the United States. They tried to keep that from happening. Corruption only gets worse. It doesn't ever get better, typically. But let's continue reading this letter from Dr. Franklin. Let's move on to the next paragraph. Quote, However, I would try anything and bear anything that can be borne with safety to our just liberties rather than engage in a war with such near relations, unless compelled to do it by dire necessity in our own defense. But should that plan be again brought forward, I imagine that before establishing the Union, it would be necessary to agree on the following preliminary articles. 1. The, Decla the Declaratory Act of Parliament to be repealed. 2. All Acts of Parliament or parts of Acts laying duties on the colonies to be repealed. 3. All Acts of Parliament altering the charters or constitutions or laws of any colony to be repealed. 4. All Acts of Parliament restraining manufacturers in the colonies to be repealed. 5. Those parts of the Navigation Acts which are for the good of the whole empire, such as requiring that ships in the trade should be British or plantation-built and navigated by three-quarters British subjects, with the duties necessary for regulating commerce to be reenacted by both parliaments. 6. Then to induce the Americans to see the regulating acts faithfully executed, it should be well to give the duties collected in each colony to the treasury of that colony and let the governor and assembly appoint the officers to collect them and proportion their salaries. Thus, the business will be cheaper and better done, and the misunderstandings between the two countries now created and fomented by the unprincipled wretches generally appointed from England be entirely prevented. These are hasty thoughts submitted to your consideration, end quote. Interesting. So there's the Declaratory Act. Again, that's item number one. He said, repeal it. And he says, all acts of parliament and the duties and so on and so forth. In other words, the taxes and, and all that stuff, repeal it. And, and again, he gets back to the colonial charters, you know, the, the restrictions on the colonial charters. He says, repeal it. Okay. Now let's continue on to the next paragraph. Quote, You will see the new proposal of Nor Lord North made on Monday last, which I have sent to the committee. Those in the administration who are for violent measures are said to dislike it. The others rely upon it as a means of dividing, and by that means subduing us. But I cannot conceive that any colony will undertake to grant a revenue to a government that holds a sword over their heads with a threat to strike the moment they cease to give or do not give so much as it is pleased to expect. In such a situation, where is the right of giving our own property freely or the right to judge of our own ability to give? It seems to me the language of a highwayman who with a pistol in your face says, give me your purse and then I will not put my hand into your pocket, but give me all your money or I'll shoot you through the head. With great and sincere, sincere esteem, I am ever, my dear friend, your most obedient and most humble servant, Benjamin Franklin, end 
quote. I tell you what, if he didn't make things clear in that, that, that first paragraph, he solidifies it here, does he not? Quote, The others rely upon it as a means of dividing, and by that means, subduing us, end quote. Dividing and subduing us. Divide and conquer is what Benjamin Franklin is talking about. And he's talking about the politicians doing that. This is not a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy theory, anyway. It's conspiracy fact. Again, if you wonder why I did that episode, this is why. It's not because I wanted folks to put on the tinfoil hats and start worrying about random, odd conspiracy theories. It's because what he describes here is a concerted effort, a conspiracy, if you will, by the politicians in Britain to divide and subdue the colonies. Divide and conquer. This is what politicians do, after all. They divide a population of people, and they conquer them. Does that sound familiar, by the way? I mean, specifically anybody in the United States, does this sound familiar to you? Like, maybe you've seen this kind of thing happen in the last, I don't know, decade or so? Just a thought. Something to let simmer, in case you uh, you wanted something to ponder over the next uh, few weeks. This is just what they do. They can't help themselves. This kind of person, people like what Benjamin Franklin is describing, and the, pe- the same kind of people who do it today all over the world, this is not just a problem in the shadow of the empire. This is a problem absolutely everywhere, in every corner of the world. This, these people who find themselves at top positions in the government, this is just what they do. What Benjamin Franklin is describing was not new in his time. It had been done for 10,000 years. And these people will continue to be inclined to do this kind of thing for another 10,000 years from now. And to deny that is to deny all of history and all human experience to your own detriment and to the detriment of your children and your children's children and your neighbors. History repeats itself, and those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. I sure hope not, but I worry greatly when people think that an election is going to save them. Just wait for that election. It will save you. Send these people, these kind of people, into the legislature, state or federal, Send them into the legislature and they will save you. Does it sound like these people are going to save you? These kind of people? Does it sound like they're going to save you? Or is Benjamin Franklin describing an entirely different scenario altogether? As Dr. Franklin says, quote, But I cannot conceive that any colony will undertake to grant a revenue to a government that holds a sword over their head, with a threat to strike the moment they cease to give, or do not give so much as it's pleased to expect. In such a situation, where is the right of giving our own property freely, or the right to judge of our own ability to give? It seems to me the language of a highwayman who, with a pistol in your face, says, Give me your purse, and then I will not put my hand into your pocket, but give me all your money, or I will shoot you through the head. End quote. The language of a highwayman. If you don't know what a highwayman is, that's basically where the term highway robbery comes from. They were people who would stand by the side of a highway, wait for somebody to come along, and then they would uh, draw a weapon and they would rob them. Highway robbery. He's describing his government. Dr. Franklin has the sad misfortune of having to describe his government with these words. What a sad commentary on the world. That these corrupt lunatics in Great Britain, in the Parliament, under the King's command, would drive this man, once so loyal to the King and to the Empire, to say these things about his own government. What an absolute shame they have brought on their people. British subjects in Britain and in the colonies and the whole of the empire. A despicable shame. This man has to sit back and watch as his government declares outright war upon their own people and conducts themselves like this. The language of a highwayman with a pistol in their face. He has to watch his own government behave this way. This has been happening for too long. The British Empire was not the first to do this. It was not the last. This has been going on and on and on for 10,000 years or more. Since there was a government, this has been going on. And by God, you would think by now we would have said, Stop! Thus far shalt thou go, but no farther. This is the end. We will not tolerate this anymore. And all the people of the world suffer in the same way eventually. We are all in this together. We are all victims of these kind of crimes by the people who are supposed to be protecting the rights instead of taking them. 
people who are supposed to be holding up the Bill of Rights as a bulwark against all tyranny and oppression instead of running the Bill of Rights through a frickin' shredder and burning the ashes that remain. It makes me sick to my stomach. When will we have had enough? Tens of thousands dead in the American Revolution fighting for freedom. You would hope that that would have been the last pile of bodies in the 10,000-year-long struggle to freedom and liberty, but it wasn't. Millions more, hundreds of millions more, died since then. Have we piled enough bodies high? Have we murdered enough people? Have these governments murdered enough of their own people yet? Have they butchered enough of their own people yet? Men, women, children? Have the rivers of blood flowed high enough yet? But don't worry. The next election is going to save us. It'll fix all of this. Just like one more round in Parliament in 1775. Don't worry, that's, that's going to save us. Remember that optimism that we heard from Benjamin Franklin? about how he, earlier in 1774, when he was writing, the, the optimism that he had that the Parliament was going to turn all this around. Just another year in Parliament. This is all just going to turn around. Don't worry. Remember those letters from episodes past? Where is that optimism now? Where is it going? Can you see it fading, slowly but surely? In just a few months' time, the first shots of the war will be fired. People are going to die. This is not mythology. This is not a story from old uh, of people who didn't really exist, just made up stories from around a campfire. These are real people who really had lives, and they died for no other reason than these corrupt bureaucrats in the parliament wanted to have their power. The language of a highwayman with a pistol in your face, quote, but give me all your money or I'll shoot you through the head, end quote. That's why they died, for no other reason than that. Because these people can't help themselves. This is just what they do. And in a few months, men in their farmhouses in Massachusetts minding their own frickin' business, wanting nothing more than to go out in the field and work and provide a little bit for their family, for their children. They are going to hear the call. They are going to grab their rifle off the wall. And they are going to march out into the countryside to engage their own military that is trying to kill them and steal their property illegally, which has already violated their constitution, their sacred rights, overthrown their legitimate government of Massachusetts, and installed a military dictatorship. And some of those men are not going to come back to their house at the end of the day. There's going to be dead bodies lying in a field, and their wives and their children will never see them again. All because some corrupt politician decided they wanted to take bribes instead of protecting the rights of the people. They wanted to live lavishly. They wanted to spend recklessly. They wanted to get their little freebies and their bonuses. And it was never enough. It was never going to be enough. So they put bodies in a field. This really happened. This is not a joke. It's easy for us to forget. You know, those of us who study history, and those of us who, who we, call, we call ourselves history enthusiasts, history buffs, it comes with a great curse. We at times become very passionate for these stories. We feel the struggle and the pain the hardship and the anger. We really feel the lives of these people. I know I do, if I haven't made that clear already. I absolutely thank Dr. Benjamin Franklin for writing this letter. If he were alive today, I would thank him, because he gave us a great gift. He gave us a window into what was really happening. And keep in mind again, Dr. Franklin was once so very loyal to the king and to the parliament and to Britain, the British Empire, that he was ridiculed by his own people in the colonies. This was, a this was quite a while before this. And now he's saying this about his government. What did it take? What did it take to turn this man around to saying this about the government he was once so loyal to? And the answer is it was just outright evil corruption, despotism, overreach, tyranny. He stared it in the face, and he knew exactly what he was dealing with. Pure evil. I will skip my separate section, my concluding section, as I sometimes uh, break out a separate section for that. I'll skip that for this episode, and I will just conclude with this. Over the last several episodes, we have, um, certainly since episode hmm, 64, 60, somewhere around there, we have gotten a very good window into what was going on in Britain, because, again, Benjamin Franklin was there. He was our eyes and ears on the ground in London, and that has sure paid off. All the danger that this man put him in at any moment could have been arrested, imprisoned by the king. He just barely escaped it when he left Great Britain to come back to the colonies. All the danger that this man put himself in. It's all worth it as long 
as we study this history and we make sure that this never, ever happens again. And I will say it again, if you think that these kind of people that Dr. Franklin is describing in this letter are ever going to save you, you are delusional. That's not what they do. They put a gun in your face, according to Dr. Franklin. That's him saying that. That's what these people do. Do not look to these people to save you. Do not look to them to be your salvation, because they are far from that. They are quite the opposite. They will bury you, and they will bury your children right next to you, if they get the opportunity. The only thing that will keep that from happening is a strict and firm adherence to the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. That is it. It is a thin line. The government that those men created by way of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights is so very valuable. But just like the British government, it can be overcome by these kind of people he describes. These people who worship money and wealth and power above everything else. There is a reason why most of these people who you elect, especially those 535 nut jobs in the United States Congress, there's a reason why they live a very different life than you do. And especially their children live a very different life than your children will ever live. There's a reason for that. And if you think they care about you and they care about your children, I believe me, you're wrong. Dr. Franklin is describing to you something here that is not isolated to the British Empire in 1775. Believe me. I hope I've been clear. This is another one of those tough episodes. You know, it's not, it's not warm and fuzzy. This is not the warm and fuzzy podcast. You know, real, real people, adults, you know, sometimes we have to deal with, um, we have to deal with some dark stuff in history. We really do. We have to read some history that is very unpleasant and causes us to be uncomfortable. I do it all the time. Like I said, it's it's a it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. I feel compelled to do it. For, like I said, since I was in single digits, I have been studying history in one form or another because it's a passion of mine. For some reason, I don't know why, I just feel driven to do it. And I have read some horrific history in my time. And I don't just casually gloss over it, as you can tell from this, this episode of the podcast. I get quite animated about it. But it's necessary. We have to look at this. Because if we don't look, we will never learn. And if we don't learn, we're really just like cattle. And believe me, the politicians will see you that way. If you don't learn, you will just be cattle to them, and they will use you accordingly. So let us aspire to something more. I want to thank everybody who joins me on this study group. It is a very important thing you do. Dr. Franklin's message in this letter would be dead, silent for all of eternity, if you were not here right now. If you were not listening to this podcast, if you were not a part of the study group, Dr. Franklin would just kind of disappear into obscurity. People might remember the name, but they wouldn't remember why or how. And his voice would be silent. And we cannot let that happen. He's too important. And, and most importantly, his message is so valuable. And so is the message of so many others. Dr. Franklin is, a, is one of my favorites. He's, he's one of the, uh, the founding fathers that really captures my attention. And I hope he does for you as well. And I hope you enjoy this episode. If you did enjoy this episode, I hope you'll join me on the next one. And if you want to, leave a review on the podcast, on Apple Podcasts. And not so much to uh, to say good things about the podcast, but just leave a question, leave a comment. Uh, if you if you have a comment about what Dr. Franklin is saying in this episode, just uh, leave a review. Say, hey, you know, episode, I believe this is going to be episode 75, or excuse me, 76. Episode 76, you know, Dr. Franklin was talking about this. Well, here's what I think about that. Leave a comment, and I'll try to, if, like I said, if it's appropriate and it's not uh, partisan or anything of the sort, I will bring it on the podcast, and I will talk about it. And if you disagree with anything I say, feel free to leave a review on the podcast as well. Let me know. And uh, if it's uh, constructive criticism, if it's appropriate and not partisan, I will bring that onto the podcast as well. So I do certainly hope to see you folks all here on the next episode of the podcast. And until then, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.